If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 609. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook. Forgotten Founders free audiobook of the same title read by yours. Truly support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com or click on the support tab at BrianMcClanahan.com or click on the shop tab at BrianMcClanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Also, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. It's a great way to help spread the message. Share around on social media. When people know you like the show, they'll like the show. So that's how we grow the audience organically. And as always, send me those show requests. I do appreciate your input and knowing what you want to hear. Now, let's talk about the topic of the day. And it's an essay from a really good book that's still in publication. You can still buy this book. It came out in 1981. And it's entitled, Why the South Will Survive, edited by Clyde Wilson. But it has great essays in it, contributors that um, are, were, are now recognized as some of the foremost voices of the South. I mean, you have Andrew Lytle in it. You've got Emmy Bradford, Tom Fleming, Clyde Wilson, of course. But I'm going to focus on an essay by George Rogers. Now, George Rogers was a very good professor of history at the University of South Carolina. wrote primarily on South Carolinian colonial history, but he actually contributed to this essay. And Rogers was not a conservative, but he was certainly pro-Southern. He understood what it meant to be Southern, and why the Southern tradition was still important. If you look at the title of the book, Why the South Will Survive, the question was, would it survive, and could it survive, and why it should survive? When this book came out, Clyde Wilson was in his early 40s, um, and so he was thinking about these things you know, 50 years after the publication of I'll Take My Stand. And here we are moving into what's going to be close to the 100th anniversary of I'll Take My Stand. We're only, we're only nine years away from that, eight years away from that when I'm, when I'm producing this. So we're almost 100 years beyond that point. And of course, uh, we still have this question. Would the South survive? What is valuable about the Southern tradition? What can we glean from the Southern tradition? What matters in the Southern tradition? And that's why I like this essay from George Rogers, because he points out some parts of the Southern tradition that are pretty important. And the title of this essay is A Southern Political Tradition. It's not long. But he actually goes back to the colonial period. If you think back a couple of weeks ago, I talked about John Taylor of Caroline and how important John Taylor of Caroline was to this idea of states' rights, this, this phrase, states' rights. Uh, Taylor is using that phrase long before it's attached to slavery or segregation or anything else. He's using it because this is exactly how this segment of the population, the real Federalists, not the they're often called anti-federalists, but they're real federalists. The Jeffersonians, the Republicans. This is how they understood the American government to function and work. And this is why that's so important for our understanding 
of Amer the American political tradition and the South's role in that American political tradition. Now, this wasn't just exclusively relegated to the South. I love it when I talk to Michael Bolden because he often rattles off Northerners who were just as, quote-unquote, states' rights-oriented as the South. Many of them. In fact, Massachusetts would not have ratified the Constitution had not the states' writers gotten their way for a proposed list of amendments. Foremost among them was what became the Tenth Amendment. You see, people like Sam Adams and John Hancock and others were simply wanting to ensure that the nature of the government would maintain a federal republic because that's the only way Massachusetts believed, people of Massachusetts believed, they could defend themselves against what they considered to be outside influences in the Union. And that would be from the South in a variety of ways. Now, of course, it's important to note that Sam Adams owned slaves. So it wasn't really about that. It was cultural. Right? Now, there were people in Massachusetts who did talk about slavery, but the arguments that they gave were often refuted by saying, well, you know, um, that South Carolina is not going to affect us. This is a federal republic. What they do down there doesn't matter what we do up here. So that was important, this federal nature of the Union. And so I love it again when Bolden does this because it takes all the steam out of these arguments that, well, states' rights is just another code word for slavery and racism. Of course, we know it's not. The historical record is very clear on this. But this essay by George Rogers gets into some of these things, and he mentions what comes out of the Southern political tradition that still matters in America in 1981. Now, he's not writing this in the 1930s, and you could say, well, 1930s, we still have segregation. There's no segregation in 1981 at all. Right? So not legally. Now, we know there's segregation. Let me take that back. We know there's segregation, but it's generally in northern cities in 1981. And we know that resistance to segregation just a few years before this was in Boston. This is where you have soiling old glory and the guy being beat over the head with a black guy being hit over the head with a Confederate flag by a white Bostonian. By the way, my 25 people who changed America, one of the people I talk about in that class is Jackie Robinson. It's important to note that Boston was the last baseball team to integrate. So much for these uh, you know, self-righteous Yankees up there. But regardless, um, you've got this impression, of course, of states' rights being exclusively attached to slavery. So that's why I want to talk about this essay by George C. Rogers, Jr. Again, from Why the South Will Survive, 15 Southerners Look at the Region a Half Century After I'll Take My Stand. He says this, he said, In 1776, the men who signed the Declaration of Independence pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. Those who met at Philadelphia in 1787 were equally willing to make similar pledges. Their signatures to the document were sufficient evidence. Having based their own revolution on the charges that the king had broken his contract, they were certain that their colleagues would honor the contract thus agreed upon. Men of honor... Their word was their bond, and they expected their sons to be worthy of them. A great civil war occurred only when enough people failed to remember and to honor the Constitution. Now, this is no lost causer, right? George Rogers was not um, in any way considered to be a lost causer at any time in his career. But note what he just said there. So we have a contract, a compact, where they pledge their honor to do it. They sign it, and they say, okay, we're all going to agree to this thing. The war only came when it was thought that there was going to be a breach of the contract, the Constitution. So the war is a constitutional crisis. Now, you can say, well, it's all about slavery then. Well, is there not 
various breaches of the contract long before 1860 and 61 that people could point to and saying, you're violating the Constitution. You're violating the Constitution. In fact, these uh, declaration of causes, even out of South Carolina, there were two of them. And the one that everyone often cites is the one that refers to slavery quite extensively. But even in that, there's some other things they say. But the other one, which was issued not by the moderates. It's important to note the one that everyone cites was really drafted by the moderates leading the fight for secession. But the other one was drafted by people like Robert Barnwell Rett. And it was all about the long-standing causes that led to the breach. And they mentioned economics quite a bit. This is what Taylor's talking about in Tyranny Unmasked. So this breach of the Constitution occurs long before we even have the slavery discussion politically, beginning really in the 1820s into the 1830s. And this is what Calhoun said in 1837. Look, the, the general government can pass a tariff that's already unconstitutional. Why can't they pass any other unconstitutional law? They can do whatever they want. There's no, there's no check on that power. And this is exactly what Rogers points out. This is what Southerners are worried about, a check on federal power over a number of things. He says this, but long before then, a new engine had arisen, which seemed to sweep all the balances under the carpet. Just as Sir Robert Walpole had used funds and places to triumph over the balance of the revolutionary sentiments of 1688, so Alexander Hamilton, by his funding schemes and his bank and his control over the numerous new federal customs and postal positions, seemed to jeopardize the victorious, the victories just won, excuse me. As early as 1794, John Taylor of Caroline made arguments reminiscent of those of Bolingbroke, if not by name, then certainly in spirit, he passed the country ideology into the minds and hearts of Southerners. The new creed was spelled out in his erator and his construction construed. Of course, what was needed to make the new government truly work was a group of virtuous men. Southerners had always known the, that only character can make constitutions work. The most serious threat to the philosophy of John Taylor of Caroline was a series of decisions rendered by John Marshall between 1819 and 1821. Let me stop there, because that's very important. And it is true. Between 1819 and 1821, John Marshall transformed the United States. This is why I talk about this and how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America, which is a great book, by the way. And you should get the class that goes with it at McClanahan Academy. But this is exactly what happened. Half of that book is dedicated to bad Supreme Court justices like John Marshall, Hugo Black, Joseph Story, that's what it's about. And of course, Story was on the Marshall Court. But in, in these two years, 1819, or three years, 1819, 1820, 1821, Marshall is going to essentially rewrite the nature of the general government through the court. Now remember, these are opinions only, as Thomas Jefferson pointed out. It's another thing that Bolden says, that, I mean, it's true. These are opinions only. This is what a court opines doesn't mean they have the force of anything but an opinion. If people don't follow it, this is, what, this is what Andrew Jackson said. Well, John Marshall's made his opinion, now let him enforce it. If the government doesn't enforce the opinions, what are you going to do? If they refuse to enforce it, it's not really anything in any way, right? It's just an opinion of a judge. They clearly emphasize the full panoply of federal power, power which Marshall reiterated reflected the will of one people, the nation. Although the concept excluded Indians, free blacks, and women, it did imply one national entity rather than 24 separate sovereignties. 
The Virginians, led by Spencer Roan, Thomas Ritchie, and John Taylor of Caroline, saw in these great substantive powers, reflecting the will of a new national majority, a threat to the concept of the Republic as they understood it. Marshall, however, in his greatest decision, Cohen's v. Virginia, apparently had the last word. Yet it was Calhoun who perceived how the concept, only a legal fiction in the hands of Marshall, became a reality in the hands of Andrew Jackson. Now, it's important to note that Rogers points out that Cohen's v. Virginia is the most important decision of all those. Notice he doesn't say McCulloch v. Maryland. He says Cohen's v. Virginia. Now, why is that important? Because Cohen's v. Virginia was a direct refutation of Virginia's attempt to exclude certain decisions from the Supreme Court. To give you a background on what happens there, and I get into this in that book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, and also in the class, but I'm just going to give you a quick and dirty, and then we'll move on. I also talk about this in my American Constitutions class and others. But what happens is you have the Cohen's brothers, who are not citizens of Virginia, they're actually citizens of Maryland, trying to sell Washington, D.C. lottery tickets in Virginia. So you have three things going on here. They're citizens from outside the state. They're selling illegal lottery tickets in Virginia. So they're arrested and fined. What Virginia had done at that point is say that any of these decisions cannot be appealed to a federal court, essentially. This is, this, they blocked it. So you're found guilty, and you can't appeal this decision beyond the state. So what did his attorneys do? They did it anyways. They appealed right to federal court, and Marshall took up the case and smacked down Virginia. Said, you can't do that. You can't, you can't nullify this part of the Judiciary Act. You can't do it. But the important point about this is that, of course, that amounts to a state to a, a federal negative of state law. That part of the Judiciary Act, because you can directly appeal these decisions to a federal court. Now, you could make a case that this was maybe up for federal a federal decision because the citizens of one state against the state, another state. So that was part of what the federal court should have been able to do. But the fact that Virginia was trying to block this decision, was trying to step in and essentially invalidate a portion of the Judiciary Act, was an affront to Marshall's power and to the Supreme Court's power, which is why he wanted to knock it down, which is what Cohen's v. Virginia did. And by doing that, it completely destroys the federal nature of the Constitution. More than McCulloch v. Maryland, which, of course, Marshall was just simply uh, regurgitating Hamilton at that point. More than that, that's exactly what he was doing. So Rogers continues, Jackson led a really national party. It was the new instrument of the political party, an institution not favored or expected by the men who met at Philadelphia in 1787. This is true. As Calhoun so clearly pointed out, by the exchanging of quid pro quos, a party could unite a, uh, could unite a group of diverse interests until there was a coalition that could capture control of all three branches of the federal government. What Marshall cherished as one people, Calhoun feared as king numbers. In a two-party system, one party could secure power with only 51% of the votes and then institute a program which would be destructive of the interests of one section of the country or the other half of the population. In order to parry this new danger, Calhoun fashioned his doctrine of nullification. It was designed as another check, a gadget to make the constitutional engine run more smoothly. So what Calhoun worried about is a tyranny of the majority. It's what a lot of people have worried about, right? 50 plus 1%, not even 50 plus 51%. It could be 50 plus 1%. It could be just one person 
over, which doesn't make it 50%. It still makes it 50%. So 50% can plunder the other 50%. Well, that's not, that's not good government. No one on the left or the right would agree with that. I can guarantee you if, it was, if the situation was uh, we had 1,000 people and in those 1,000 people, there were 501 that supported one thing and 499 that supported another and the 501 win and they were on the right. The 499 would raise bloody hell about it because they're going to get plundered by the 501. Well, what makes two people more? Or let's say there's 1,001 is 501 against 500. What makes that one person that important to ensure that the 501 will plunder and pillage the other 500? That's not good government. This is what Calhoun talks about in the concurrent majority. And I want to talk about this week that this week in a podcast episode about Think Locally, Act Locally, because it's really important. Somebody has taken this to heart in Texas, and they've done something that's amazing. And I'll talk about that. So this is what Calhoun was trying to do, prevent this kind of thing. Prevent the tyranny of the majority through his concurrent majority, a real majority, which was the majority of the whole rather than just numbers. And so if you have a national party using the apparatus there, I mean, this is what we see in the Democrats, right? Or the Republicans, either one. It's not a situation where we have true majorities in America. This is why the states have to get involved. It's what Calhoun recognized, to protect the people of those states from an oppressive majority. Another fundamental concern of Calhoun was the party, once in power, could use federal funds and patronage to maintain itself in power for long periods of time. We know this happens. In the spoil system, Calhoun perceived the old English practice of places and pensions. This hatred of a new form of corruption led the Carolina planter to focus more fiercely on the ideal of the independent man in office. A man should not campaign, should not spend money in order to secure office, should not should be known for his past achievements, should be visible without the aid of anyone to tout his accomplishments. Elevation to office depended upon honorable standing in society. This promotion of virtue depended upon limitation of power and upon a social situation where man's relationship were close enough to allow the recognition of virtue. The opposite implied the manipulation of office to achieve dominance in society. Thus the concept of the unconnected figure was thrown up against the new Jacksonian system of patronage and rewards. So think about what he's saying here. It's a disinterested statesman. It's George Washington. It's Thomas Jefferson. It's the idea you don't campaign. And we, we saw that throughout most of American history until the 20th century. It's only in the 20th century you start seeing the campaign. And I, and I ask people, why do you want to elect somebody that wants the job so badly? And do we really even know these people? Most of them are just hacks. They're ridiculous. It doesn't matter if they're on the left or the right. They're just ridiculous. And they spout whatever platitudes and slogans they think are going to get them elected so they can get power, which is exactly what they want. Most of them are interested in doing anything but abusing power. Rogers gets on to nullification. He says, nullification was a failure of constitutional as a constitutional theory that we know, yet in, in another form, that of the concurrent majority, Calhoun's idea did endure for at least 100 years. David Potter, perhaps the wisest of the historians produced by the South in the last two generations, told this story in the South and the concurrent majority. When the Democratic Party adopted a two-thirds rule for nomination at its conventions in 1836 and retained that rule until Franklin Roosevelt broke it in 1936, there was brought into being a way that Southerners, Southern interests could not be ignored. Thus, the march of king numbers over the balance of power was retarded and delayed. In a republic, power must continue to be broken up. The march in the world today is against republics and in favor of totalitarian regimes. Perhaps this is the destiny of all mankind. Thus, 
What is important is to delay that march for as long as possible. As differences in property are erased, the rage of envy becomes ever more compelling, and thus the minds of men who exhibit talent and genius are smothered. The duty of the Republican is to emphasize structure so that the final unanimous cry shall never be heard. Potter also demonstrates that Southerners work to amplify their voices in another way, by adapting the new committee system of Congress to their own needs. Once standing committees were organized and the rule of seniority followed, then persons who served for long periods could obtain more than ordinary effectiveness. The system emerged in the third and fourth decades of the 19th century, not to be broken up until the 1970s. Within this almost 150-year period, and especially after the Civil War and Reconstruction, Southern leadership was to make itself a potent force in the Republic, one exerted for the preservation of a limited federal government. Another institution used by Southerners was the convention. Oh, let me, let me back up. I mean, this is what people often complain about. Well, Southerners are exercising more power. This is how the South won, won the war but lost the war, right? Southerners dominated because they used Calhoun. It's all Calhoun's fault. It's all political trickery. So, yeah, I mean, Southerners were dominating certain parts of the government, and they had a lot of power. Richard Russell, for example, had a tremendous amount of power in Congress, but I want to mention this last thing with the conventions, and I want to try to keep my podcast this week around 20 minutes. So he says, another institution used by Southerners was the convention. The genealogy of this institution is perhaps more ancient than that of any other political institution. By the way, if you want to hear me talk about conventions, there's a lecture I have on YouTube. Conventions, the voice of the people. It was recorded uh, in Georgia about four years ago. But I talk about conventions. In February 1776, James Wilson and John Dickinson, both of Pennsylvania, Dickinson slash Delaware, attempted to prove the constitutionality of the Continental Congress on the grounds of analogy to the Assembly of the Barons at Runningmead. When Magna Charta was signed, the Convention Parliament that recalled Charles II, and the Convention of Lords and Commons that placed King William on the throne. Thus the lines of conventions ran back to Runnymede and followed to Philadelphia to the state ratifying conventions, and to the nullification and secession conventions. On these occasions, the ablest men came forth with a mandate fresh from the sovereign people to settle the most important questions. Ordinarily, such men might not be willing to take seats in legislative bodies merely to suffer the tedium of endless debate and few accomplishments, necessary as such day-to-day work was. But the Republic was in danger. They would answer the call and appear to give the joint wisdom of the community some force, Certainly the ablest men were more willing to come forward at such times, and perhaps the people were also more willing to vote for recognizable talent. Can it be that we do not make use of this institution any longer because we have lost the ability to recognize talent? Or is it that we not produce men of talent anymore? Nothing has been more conducive to the emphasizing of the irrelevant and the downplaying of the perennial than television. One shudders to realize that it now may make possible a pure democracy, something which the Madisons and the Hamiltons both abhorred. He says, Thus the Southern political tradition was fully established before the Civil War. It consisted of a belief in republics guided by the best talent of the community. Within this tradition, the hardest political thinking must be devoted to creating new political institutions designed to break up any growing aggressions of power. Men must be trained to perceive dangers and to sound alarms. Certainly in 1860, in the winter of 1860-61, Southerners thought they were following the examples of their forefathers who had fought the British. Robert Bonwell Rhett, the father of secession, consciously modeled his career after those of Christopher Gadsden and Patrick Henry. 
Now, he does say, of course, that the greatest tragedy of all this was to defend slavery. So there's nothing wrong with this. Of course, they, this was used to defend slavery um, in his mind. But the, port, the important thing about that is the tradition is bigger than slavery. He says it's there before the war. The issues are irrelevant. This, this, this uh, tradition was based on an understanding of British history or English history and the American experience. Conventions, states' rights, limitation of federal power, the best men, Calhounian ideas of concurrent majority, all of this is wrapped up in that Southern tradition, and it's very potent and valuable to this day. He's writing it in 1981. All that still makes sense today when you listen to what he says. Do we have good men anymore? Do we have, do we have a bunch of terrible politicians? Well, how do we, how do we check this? Well, Conventions are a way. They have to be called by the state legislature. So I call on people who are interested in local and state government. Start doing these things. It's not gone. The states can still do all this stuff. And the federal government really has no power when challenged by the states. It almost always backs down. That's an important lesson to learn. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you tomorrow for the next one. See you then.